The Start. On Demand. On demand. Greg, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a little on the, the fatigue side oh, this morning. You I, just had a whole day off, an entire day off, Sunday. I forgot the Golden Globes were on last night. I was getting ready for bed, basically. It was around 7 o'clock, and I thought, I'll go to bed soon. And then I remembered, oh, Golden Globes are on. I should probably watch those. And uh, I'm glad I did. Wow. Normally very skippable. Yeah. Right? Any awards program, in my opinion, very missable. Uh, last night's was not to be missed. And if you did miss it, we will get you up to date. Good morning, man. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, too. You enjoyed the the, the ice hockey match on Friday. I enjoyed it Friday, and I enjoyed it yesterday afternoon. The Jets with two more victories. Well, the San Jose Sharks apparently don't like coming to Winnipeg very much, not because uh, we beat them on a regular basis, but apparently their hotel is not good enough for them, and uh, it's cold and dark here. We'll tell you a little bit more about a video that the San Jose Sharks broadcast played yesterday and uh, Winnipeg Jets fans and Winnipegers period reacting to that. We'll play the audio and have a discussion about that as we make our way throughout the morning to Manitobans going to represent Canada and the mixed doubles curling. What do you mean? John Morris is from Alberta. Yeah, he lives in Alberta. He's from, but he's got a Winnipeg birth certificate. And of course, Caitlin Laws, uh, born and raised here in Winnipeg. Congratulations to them. Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, doing an amazing job hosting the event that decided uh, yesterday who would represent Canada in mixed doubles. We spoke with Jeff Stoughton, who is the coach uh, of that team last week. And so, yeah, huge congratulations out to Portage La Prairie and to Caitlin Laws and John Morris for, uh, they started out the week, I think they lost their first two games and uh, came around and uh, were victorious yesterday in uh, quite decisive fashion. So congratulations to them. And they took the long way to get there too this weekend. Correct. Because when I left Saturday afternoon from doing my uh, news shift on the weekend, the uh, Caitlin and John had lost their three... They're, were they in the one-two? They, they were in the one-two yeah, and so lost. They, so they lost. So they had to go through the semifinal, and uh, yeah, <laughs> they took the the hard road to get there, but uh, they earned it. So good for them. Congratulations. That's exciting stuff. It is exciting stuff. Who's your best friend, Brett McGarry? I uh, I struggle. You know, <laughs> I do have one. <laughs> yes, I, I have you one. In mind, you don't have but, to say it out loud. No, but it, was that something you struggled with in school and? That's maybe rhetorical at this point in time, because there is a movement, believe it or not, within the school system. I believe it started in Europe. It's now proliferating to the United States. It may be even happening in your school right now. And that is essentially the banning of best friends. Kids are not allowed in many schools around the world to not have a best friend. I read this article. You sent uh, sent the article over the weekend with the uh, the abbreviation WTF, and I thought that was my reaction when I read the headline. But then after reading the article, which was put together by a psychologist, I thought, you know, there's actually something to this, maybe. Any excuse to play the queen. That's right. <laughs> I love it. Behind the glass, Jerry, Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, it is the Shadow Davis Show, 616 on this Monday morning. Do you think... Kids should not be allowed to have one best friend at school. Here's what Shadow Davis thinks. Good morning, best friends. I think we all have at least one person like that, right? 
Somebody you can lean on, somebody who can lean on you through thick and thin, good times and bad, you remain together. I've got a few friends like that in my life, going back to school days, and no matter how long we spend apart because we live in different cities, or how long it's been since we've spoken, and sometimes it's a while because, you know, you're busy, within a few seconds we pick right up where we left off. I can't explain why these guys are so close, I can't explain why they became so important to me, and I certainly can't explain how it all began. I guess we just saw eye to eye on certain things, got each other's jokes, shared some of the same interests, and never stopped. But if a certain rule that's gaining steam in schools today was in force back then, things would probably be very different today. I'm talking about this new trend that's sweeping Europe and the U.S. and is now becoming a thing in Canada. Drumroll, please! Banning best friends in school. What? 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 Yeah, it's true. It's not a skit. It's real. The premise behind this is to encourage all kids to form bonds with one another to avoid creating feelings of exclusion among those without best friends. And the other reason, well, here's Lionel from the Lionel Nation podcast. They're doing it to save the child from the pain of splitting up from their best friend. Well, I guess the friendship ends, the kid moves, gives you the heave-ho or predeceases you, I suppose. Kind of novel, don't you think? I guess along that logic, kids and adults should not have pets because they'll die. They shouldn't grow too attached to grandparents or their own parents because, let's face it, they're old and they're going to kick. Perhaps self-loathing might be a theme as well because you're going to die, so don't get too attached to yourself. And for that matter, stay single because divorce is heartbreaking. (laughs) However, some psychologists and parents argue kids become more well-adjusted when they have larger friend groups and can avoid the negative feelings associated with feeling left out. What about learning resiliency? What about learning how to lose? Hello, junior team Sweden captain, Leas Anderson, who threw a silver medal into the crowd after losing to Team Canada over the weekend. I wonder if Leas went to a school where they don't keep score and nobody ever loses. Nonetheless, this trend is growing. Christine Lakop is the director of counseling at Mary Institute in St. Louis, and she says, We try to talk to kids and work with them to get them to have big groups of friends and not be so possessive. Best friends with their tight bonds and inside jokes throw a wrench into that open environment, school officials contend. How alarming is that? There's even research out there, and a lot of it, that suggests having best friends creates value and not just as a kid but through the entire life. Rochelle Narr of the University of Virginia did a study and says, yeah, we weren't surprised to find out that kids with a broader group of friends grow up with higher rates of anxiety than kids with smaller numbers of close friends. Come on. This banning best friends thing might help in the bubble they've put kids in these past few years, but when these kids come out of that bubble in their late teens or early 20s, they're going to be in for a series of eye-opening and brutal situations like somebody laughing at their haircut or heaven forbid somebody telling them they have to be on time or face the consequences and the consequences will not be going to the quiet room for two minutes either (sighs) back to mackling and mcgarry brett i had a party at my house on the weekend okay and i didn't invite you i'm sorry that's okay 
I see had pines easy, anyway. See how easy that was? <laughs> yeah. It's not a big deal, man. There's a there's a clip on Family Guy that uh, one of my buddies always likes to refer to. It's, uh, it's something similar to the discussion we just had, and then it's uh, there's a little jingle that says, Men, we know how to be friends. Uh, <laughs> it's just so easy. Yeah, I mean, and it's not. We've had that conversation as well, right? We yeah. think it's easy, and in a broad sense, men aren't really doing a very good job of that at all. But... Uh, yes, this whole idea of if you don't invite the entire class to the birthday party, you're not allowed to hand out the invitations. Yeah, it's 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 getting silly. Yeah, it, it, there is. It's a catch twenty two. And like I said, I read this article. Uh, the headline on that is: Should schools ban kids from having best friends? We're going to have a longer chat about this at six forty five. But I, I admit I was surprised that I found myself agreeing with a lot of it, and. Uh, yeah, I don't know, because I I know that if I was a kid and invitations were being passed out, I don't know that I'd want to be the one who doesn't get you an invite. You don't want to be the one that doesn't get invited, but you know what? As a father of two 11-year-olds, I want my kids to learn those lessons. Not everybody likes you. Last night, the Golden Globe Awards, you mentioned that you... Almost regretfully watched it, but it was really one of those award shows for the ages because normally they do very little for me, and I was captivated in particular by one part of the program. Yeah, the uh, award shows in general I find are, are a tough slog, particularly the Oscars. I do tip, tend to enjoy the Golden Globes because it's it's more laid back. The the said they're sitting at tables instead of in rows of seats. They've got they actually they let them consume alcohol during the show. It's movies and TV, so it's kind of all or both aspects of pop culture that I truly enjoy. Um, but if you miss the awards, it's kind of not a big deal. Last night was different, of course. This is the first awards, big awards show that uh, we've seen since all of the allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault and all this stuff has come out. So that was uh, it, it was a completely different tone. The awards themselves, the 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 content, uh, the actual you know who won what, took a huge backseat. And uh, I think Seth Meyers, for example, set the tone. Quite nicely to begin with. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he, of course, he has great comedy chops from his time in Saturday Night Live, reading the Weekend Update. Now he hosts his own show. And here are the first 90 seconds, in case you missed it. I thought he just nailed his monologue. So funny and sharp and biting and satirical and uh, just great. Good evening, ladies and remaining gentlemen. I'm Seth Myers, and I'll be your host tonight. Welcome to the 75th annual Golden Globes and Happy New Year, Hollywood. It's 2018, marijuana is finally allowed and sexual harassment finally isn't. It's gonna be a good year. Good correlation, though. Yeah. This was the year of Big Little Lies and Get Out, and also the television series Big Little Lies and the movie Get Out. <laughs> There's a new era underway, and I can tell, because it's been years since a white man was this nervous in Hollywood. <laughs> By the way, a special hello to hosts of other upcoming award shows who are watching me tonight 
like the first dog they shot into outer space. <laughs> For the male nominees in the room tonight, this is the first time in three months it won't be terrifying to hear your name read out loud. <laughs> I missed that earlier. <laughs> Did you hear about Willem Dafoe? Oh, God, no. He was nominated. Don't do that. Don't. Do that. <laughs> yeah, he was he managed to tread the topic very carefully in a way that he was able to have lots of fun with it, but still not be oblivious or, or insensitive or anything like that. And he had made some really nasty comments towards Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein. I just thought it was bang on. I think for me it was probably my favorite monologue I've ever watched at an awards show. And I know that you also had uh, some chunks of audio that you pulled out of it. Well, I thought he did a tremendous job of foreshadowing of what was going to be the highlight of the night. Oprah Winfrey is receiving the Cecil B. DeMille Award tonight. What a tremendous honor for Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> and Oprah, while I have you, in 2011, I told some jokes about our current president at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, jokes about how he was unqualified to be president, and some have said that night convinced him to run. So if that's true, I just want to say, Oprah, you will never be president. <laughs> you do not have what it takes. And Hanks, where's Hanks? You will never be vice president. You are too mean and unrelatable. <laughs> now we just wait and see. <laughs> I don't know. I would say four years ago, the idea of Oprah Winfrey running for president in 2020 or at any point would have been something that you would have taken with a grain of salt. But now you look around and you go, the Democratic Party has no heir apparent. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders still really kind of leading the charge for the Democrats. Everybody knows he's really too old for the job. Yep. And when you look around, might there be a better choice than Oprah? I, I, I'm not sure if there is one that might be better in yeah. terms of a, a possible run against Donald Trump in it, two years. And why not? I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think of... <laughs> I think of Doc Brown in Back to the Future when Marty goes back in time and he, he quizzes him, who is the president of the United States? And he says, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, the actor? <laughs> yes. Just beside himself. Right. And it, at the time that seemed weird, but Ronald Reagan was president and now Donald Trump is president, so why not? Oprah Winfrey, especially with, uh, I mean, the, the speech she gave last night, it felt very presidential. It really did. Should we play some of it? Yeah, let's play some of it. In 1964, I was a little girl sitting on the linoleum floor of my mother's house in Milwaukee, watching Anne Bancroft present the Oscar for Best Actor at the 36th Academy Awards. She opened the envelope and said five words that literally made history. The winner is Sidney Poitier. Up to the stage came the most elegant man I had ever seen. I remember his tie was white and of course his skin was black and I'd never seen a black man being celebrated like that. And I have tried 
many, many, many times to explain what a moment like that means to a little girl, a kid watching from the cheap seats as my mom came through the door, bone tired from cleaning other people's houses. But all I can do is quote and say that the explanation in Sydney's performance in Lilies of the Phil, amen, 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 amen. In 1982, Sidney received the Cecil B. DeMille Award right here at the Golden Globes, and it is not lost on me that at this moment, there are some little girls watching as I become the first black woman to be given the same award. Oprah's often accused of being self-important. Mm -hmm. I always find her very self-aware as to where she fits into the entire dynamic of the United States and where she fits in with little girls, where she fits in with other women. And I think she uses her profile as well as it can be used for someone with as much power, legitimate power, as she has. Uh, some of it can be self-indulgent, but for the most part, I think she's very self-aware. Last night's speech in particular was just magnificent, and she proved uh, why she is who she is. She's just such a uh, such a great communicator, and as you you chose the, the, the correct word, power. There's just so much power in her words, in her delivery, just in her name, as Reese Witherspoon alluded to in her introduction. All you got to do is say the word Oprah, and that's that says it all. Back to school for the kiddies. I know lots of parents are celebrating that, but with that comes your first day back at work quite possibly. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Macklin McGarry in the morning. It is the Shadow Davis Show. And this morning we're having coffee talking about inclusivity. Some schools are trying to encourage students to include all of their classmates in social activities. For example, that might include making sure that a child invites everyone to their birthday party rather than just certain kids. And to go a little bit further, as we've been speaking about and shadowed at his first commentary on, there are a few schools that are putting the kibosh, great word, on having a best friend at school. So today we're having coffee talking inclusivity. Do you think everyone should always be included in social activities? So Shanley Vidal is here. Christian O'Mell is here. Jeff Braun. And behind the glass, Jerry. Shanley Vidal, let's start with you. What do you think about all this? When you see the headline, should schools ban kids from having best friends, what's your gut reaction on that? Um, well, it's funny thinking back to when I was a kid. That might actually could have been pretty interesting because maybe I would have made more friends. You know, because, you know, as a person who was uh, very shy and quiet and didn't make a lot of friends naturally. Right. Um, so that would have been interesting. But as an adult now, because those kids are going to, you know, be inviting everyone to their parties and they're going to grow up like that. So now as an adult, I've tried the inclusivity approach because, you know, I do feel bad leaving people out. Right. So I've tried that. And you know what? It just doesn't it doesn't work because it's too many people and you're not building the um, those core relationships as much with those certain people. So it's more people, but less quality time. So 
You do. I, I find it is important to pick and choose as you do get older and, and make that decision. We just came through the holiday season where many of us had family dinners. And you know the saying, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And this feels as though we're forcing kids to be together, even though the dynamics within their groups might suggest they don't even really like each other in certain cliques. Why are we promoting yeah, this idea people. of putting everyone together, Christian? Uh, you don't want to hurt people's feelings. I think that's the big thing. Things. You don't want to hand Stacy an invitation when, you know, Tanya there isn't getting one. But, Greg, for you, I have a question. If you had to have all of your kids' classmates over for a party <laughs> instead of having six kids, all, 30 right. have to be there because right. the school says so, how do you feel about hosting all of them? Yeah, just not having a party. <laughs> and I think that's what I, I could see that have a lot fewer parties because it's also due. The parents have to put up with all of those kids. And there's a great big competition between parents right now about birthday parties and about mm. where you go and the trampoline and the bowling. and the. I mean, it costs a lot of dough to throw uh-huh. on a, a birthday party just with five or six kids coming uh, for your kids' birthday parties, never mind to have the entire class, Jeff Braun. You don't have to tell your kids when their birthday is, though, right? I bet a lot of kids would go to eight or nine years old before they'd realize, hey, I've never had a birthday. What's going on? (laughs) I'm just saying. That's just a tip. One of my kids knows the birthday (laughs) of every single one of the kids in his class and has known since grade three. So Sounds like a candidate for accountants now. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the question. Would you rather... Not be invited to a birthday party or have to go to a birthday party with Everyone. a bunch of kids that you know aren't really your friends that they're just making you go anyways. You know, I think you make a great point, but you make that point from the adult perspective, not as the as a kid, Brett. Yeah, I don't know what I would want to do. I think as an adult, if we, you know... <laughs> We'd I, rather not go. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. I wouldn't want to be in a room full of people that I might not necessarily care about. And uh, this whole conversation makes me think back to when uh, I was set to be married in 2013. I actually struggled with the decision of who I should choose for my best man because, I mean, I fully admit I'm wishy-washy, I'm indecisive, but in this case, it was hard for me to pick one because I have a number of close friends whom I value immensely and consider to be my brother. So how do I choose one? And I ultimately elected not to have a best man and instead referred to the groomsmen as my best men. I think it was okay. an unpopular Ooh. decision and luckily the wedding never happened so I didn't have to <laughs> worry about the fallout. Lol. I often in those situations I I envy the people who have like one brother. I was like, oh, slam dunk. <laughs> no, there's no awkward conversation there. The best man's my brother. That's all there is to it. You can't argue with that. Yeah, it's hard. It really is hard to argue But with But that. maybe for those kids, like in few years when they grow up, maybe maybe they're going to be used to that. Maybe they're going to be used to having best men and, and best ladies. Look, you can't engineer it seems against I don't know. Only one person can sign that uh, marriage certificate for you. That's right. You Not can't have five group. guys signing for you. Yeah, look... <laughs> I, I, Brett and I were talking about this off the air. I admit my kids have a little bit of a built-in buffer, right? Because they're twins, so they always mm-hmm. have Fair one enough. another. But on the same, on the other side of it, is that they get they get picked on a little bit because they are twins. So they've got the kind of the double-edged sword happening there. And I outlined a, a scenario with Brett uh, just in the last year where things were difficult within my kids' social circles. My children, I want my children learning how to deal with this stuff because it's real life. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. And you can say, well, you can't have a best friend, but kids are always going to gravitate to one kid that they're going to want to spend the most time with. Whether you call them a best friend or not, that's their best friend. And we have, we see, it almost seems, I don't know if it's human nature or what, but we seem to have this need to rank things. For yes. example, not the same thing, but I saw Star Wars The Last Jedi for the third time this week. Oh, it back to Star Wars. And the, 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 the debate rages on internally, where do I rank The Last Jedi? There's just this need to rank it. And someone said, do you have to rank them? Yeah. There are no consequences if you don't do it, Brett. Yeah. So <laughs> in terms of friends, we just, maybe it's the same thing. We just have this need to have this ranking system. But where? Or do you rank it seriously? Last Jedi? Yeah. I still haven't decided. Oh. It's, it, it, for me, it's Rogue One, number one, Empire, number two, and then the rest is a free for all. I really he's, like that Rogue One, eh? I do. Oh my gosh. He yeah. said he's wishy washy. Yeah, that's right. I'm, <laughs> disclaimer. I'm impressed that you could actually make a list that based I, on your wishy washiness. Of the. Well, I only of got anything. Two. <laughs> you were able to rank anything. He ranked two things. Yeah. Wow. That's right. One, two. <laughs> the rest I'm too scared to, to, to decide about. Well, we, we need your feedback on this, and we are already getting it. And decidedly against the idea of this social engineering, this falsehood that we're creating for our kids, this false equivalency. Sorry. Sorry. Kids sort things out. They rank themselves out. You can't be friends out. with every single person. That's not how it works. It's not it's how exhausting. it works. And I don't yes. know why we're encouraging kids to be friends with everybody. Not everybody's likable, right, Channel Lee? <laughs> no, not at all. And that's, and that's the thing, too. You, you know, when you get to a point in your life, you realize, you know what? I don't like kids this person. I don't have to invite them to my party. 204-780-6868. You can send us a text message with letting us know what you think. You can also email brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. We already got one email from Jeff who says, you've got to be kidding. Would someone please tell the social engineering reconstruction types to just... Oh, I can't read the rest of that. Uh, <laughs> 204-780-6868 is the number to call. The Shadow Davis Show with Mac Bing and McGarry. Now, as you alluded to on Friday, I have a little bit of a Twitter addiction. Yes. I enjoy the Twitter. I don't enjoy necessarily all the conversation that goes on on Twitter, but it is a great place to get nuggets of information, to take the pulse, if you will, of what people are thinking about different events that are going on in the world. And like... At the time, right? At the moment. And then to to look back into different timelines and to see how people have reacted uh, is something that I very much enjoy. The San Jose Sharks were in Winnipeg yesterday. The Jets uh, laid a nice 4-1 uh, loss, handed them the, the, uh, the L, as they say, and the Sharks are back on their way back to California. I think they have a week off to uh, contemplate what happened to them here in Winnipeg. But the outcome of the game became somewhat secondary on Twitter yesterday when someone shared the video that NBCS, NBC Sports Authentic shared. They broadcast the Shark Games, and they asked the players, a handful of their players, what is the worst city to play in? Yeah, they actually asked this question. Well, here's the answers. I think it's Winnipeg. It's every time it's so cold and dark there. It's I don't know. I don't like there. <laughs> Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> dark, cold hotel. <laughs> it's a little, little question. <laughs> Internet doesn't work ever. I don't know if they have Wi-Fi there yet. So. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with Winnipeg then. It's a bit cold. 
Yeah, so that was, that was their big joke there. But, uh, Winnipeg is the worst city to come to, and I don't know what hotel they're staying at. They're staying at, like, I don't know, the Pink Flamingo on Pemina Highway or something, <laughs> like, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. Like, seriously, um, which hotel have you ever been in anywhere in the world where the Wi-Fi works? Yeah, I went to. I remember the last time I went to Las Vegas. I was shocked at how difficult it was to get Wi-Fi uh, because I think you had it, but then you had to pay a whole bunch. I don't know. Yeah, Wi-Fi in hotels is a huge pain. Did, was that was this just a put on because of the fact that they are playing the Jets, or was do you think that this was spontaneous and uh, they just held Organic, on to this? Do you think? I don't, I don't know. know. It's tough to tell. It's tough to tell. The first player is a European player, so uh, as you could hear, his English is a little bit broken. He he seems sin- sincere. The other two guys might have been prompted somewhat in order to uh, you know to garner a certain response. I'm not exactly sure, but boy, the responses on Twitter were fast and furious. And, uh, you know, Jets fans have no shortage of imagination when it comes to responses to these things. It's because they hate losing. Hashtag dark. Hashtag cold. Hashtag losers. What a bunch of soft individuals you have there. Not a compliment. Winnipeg gets more sunshine than nearly every major city in North America. So not really. Someone says San Jose earthquakes, wildfires, drought, three-hour commutes. Everyone carries a gun. No health care. Other than that, yeah, I guess Winnipeg could use better Wi-Fi. And the, the responses go on and on. And uh, the Wi-Fi <laughs> seemed to be of all the things rolled off our back about the cold and the dark. It seemed to be the Wi-Fi thing that people really, (laughs) really honed in on. It's really difficult to uh, respond on Twitter with this rotary phone that I have. Uh, Just finally got Wi-Fi last week, so I'm glad I got it in time to to make this this response to you. So... Anyway, good on you, Jets fans, for uh, keeping it humorous and and, uh, honing in on the Wi-Fi thing, because I think that is the funniest part of the entire thing. We can take the dark. We can take the cold. We really don't care what you think of our weather. Yeah, and they're coming from San Jose, California. Uh, I'm just pulling up the weather right now in San Jose. It, it, well, it's actually, <laughs> it's it's 11 degrees and raining right now, so oh, it's really? miserable there right oh. now, too. Oh, too bad, <laughs> so sad. <laughs> anyway, what was your response to this? Is this the first time you're hearing of this? Uh, is it a big deal in any way? I don't think it's a big deal, having a lot of fun with it, but uh, that is some of the perception issues that uh, some folks suggest Winnipeg has, not only with fans elsewhere, but players elsewhere. And uh, when the Jets came back in the National Hockey League in 2011, one of the big concerns was you'll never be able to keep your superstar players because they'll want to leave at the first opportunity. Nobody will want to get traded there and free agents won't sign there. Well, other than Evander Kane, the Jets have essentially had and Zach Bogosian apparently has to be traded, but Nowhere, no other players have really asked to quote unquote get out. The Jets have had zero difficulty in signing their players to long term contracts, and some of them at a very reasonable rate. Some of them have had to, you know, you've had to throw maybe an extra million dollars at them to stay in Winnipeg, but. Uh, the best example, Nikolai Ehlers uh, signing for a seven-year, $6 million contract. That's going to be a bargain somewhere down the line. So a lot of the things that people have said about Winnipeg and being in the National Hockey League haven't necessarily come to fruition. And when you're in first place in your division, who really cares what these guys are saying? 
Adam McGarry, Greg Mackling, Shadow Davis Show, 680 CJOB. We wanted to revisit the Golden Globes because so much happened on the awards show last night. As far as the awards go, I think the two takeaways that I got from that were I really need to see three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes. And which has come and gone already in theaters here in Winnipeg. So hopefully we'll be able to see that in some capacity soon. I did not see it when it was in its initial run. And as far as television goes, Big Little Lies once again uh, did very well. The uh, HBO limited series, which I think actually there's going to be another season. But I've been meaning to watch that. And anybody with an HBO subscription can watch it on demand. So that's not... Like, there's nothing holding me back other than all of the other TV I watch. <laughs> but the, the awards themselves, the the shows, the, the movies really took the backseat to what was being discussed. It was a very powerful evening in terms of everyone recognizing the... the you know, I think uh, Frances McDormand, it, in her award speech, acknowledged, referred to it as a tectonic shift in the industry. And then it was all... Well, Seth Meyers in his monologue had all sorts of funny things to say. I actually wanted to play, how much time do we have here? Yes, I'll play a piece of his monologue, which tackles more of that, and then we'll hear some more remarks from Oprah Winfrey in her amazing speech as she accepted the Cecil B. DeMille Award. They tried to get a woman to host this show. They really did. They said, hey, how would you like to come and be judged by some of the most powerful people in Hollywood? And women were like, Hmm, well, where is it? And they said it's at a hotel, and long story short, I'm your host tonight. <laughs> and we're all here tonight courtesy of the Hollywood Foreign Press. A string, yeah. Give it up for the Hollywood Foreign Press. A string of three words that could not have been better designed to infuriate our president. <laughs> Hollywood Foreign Press. <laughs> The only name that would make him angrier would be the Hillary Mexico Salad Association. <laughs> well, I think it's time to address the elephant not in the room. Harvey Weinstein isn't here tonight. Because, well, I've heard rumors that he's crazy and difficult to work with. But don't worry, he'll be back in 20 years when he becomes the first person ever booed during the in-memoriam. <laughs> It'll sound like that. <laughs> uh, Priceless. Very well done, Seth Meyers. Very well done. And uh, as you mentioned, Oprah Winfrey really did steal the show. And I mentioned my addiction to Twitter. Uh, Oprah blew up Twitter, including the hashtag Oprah for President after part of her speech. Well, all her speech, and here's part of it. I've interviewed and portrayed people who've withstood some of the ugliest things life can throw at you. But the one quality all of them seem to share is an ability to maintain hope for a brighter morning, even during our darkest nights. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody 
ever has to say, me too, again. Thank you. Thanks for taking some time out of your day and spending some of it with us. I'm Brett, I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Macklin. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's Monday. Yeah, it's Monday. No, I'm Greg. He's Brett. It's the Shadow Davis Show. Boy, oh boy. You would have figured after two days of solid rest, I would be a little bit more in tune than that. Have we become unsympathetic to the rest of Canada when it gets cold? Do you have a hard time being sympathetic toward your friends elsewhere when they complain about how cold it is where they live? The Canadian parody website, The Beaverton, who is sometimes funny, mostly not funny, published a report a few days ago titled, Winnipeg Unable to Take Your Cold Weather Complaints Seriously. For those of us who live here, it seems pretty amusing and confirms that Winnipeggers really are a hearty bunch. It is as cold as Mars here, after all, sometimes. So the article reads as follows. Reacting to a recent cold spat encompassing most of the country, the city of Winnipeg and the surrounding townships have been unable to take everyone else's complaints about the weather seriously, according to a report released today. Quote, I want to feel bad for them. I really do, says Winnipeg resident Cheryl Cardinal, 37, who is biting her tongue after reading her friends in Toronto complain about the cold online. She adds, but like... We'll get temperatures as cold as the surface of Mars. So, oh, and that's without the wind chill factor. <laughs> While places in southern Ontario were dealing with the cold by bundling up in the warmest clothing they owned to brave the outdoors, many people in Winnipeg couldn't help but wonder why so many of these people only seemed to own either stylish leather jackets or wool coats that work best in fall and spring. And I'm going to divert just a little bit here. One of my favorite Paul Maurice clips of all time has to do with the conversation we were having in our last half hour about free agents and guys not wanting to come to Winnipeg. He says, plain and simply, get a thicker coat. (laughs) That's it. That's his advice. Anyway, I digress. Back to the uh, Beaverton. Why don't these people own parkas, said Richard Henderson, clearly a fictitious name, who has spent the last 59 winters of his life in Winnipeg. This is Canada, for God's sake. Please, you've got to take care of yourselves. The report indicated that 30% of people from Winnipeg reacted to these complaints by laughing, while 45% pretended to cry about people moaning about winter temperatures that most Winnipeggers would call balmy. It really is true, though. You know, if you... Because we, for example, I did this. The New Year's Eve business in Ottawa and Toronto when they had to scale back their celebrations because it was going to be minus 16. My God, minus 16. Meanwhile, the Forks and their outdoor stuff, full steam ahead, minus 30 degrees, no problem. Barely a modification. I think the only modification they made was their concern for the horses that were pulling the the horse-drawn carriages around the Forks. That was the only stated and public modification that they declared, and they were going to be monitoring that. That wasn't even a for sure that that was going to change. (laughs) Probably the horses are tougher in Manitoba as well. That's true. I wonder if the horses have a rivalry. (laughs) The Sharks and the Jets have a rivalry. Why not the horses between Ontario and Manitoba? So the Beaverton, once again, I think they, you're right, they they, they might not be always funny, but they, they really have touched on something here. We've all complained about Toronto or Vancouver or whoever, whatever community, complaining about however cold it is. Yeah, it's not. We're, We're tougher. We are tougher.
Mackling and McGarry in the morning. It is the Shadow Davis show. And uh, on Monday's channel, Eva Dell in her three things segment typically tells us about three things that you may have missed over the weekend. But Shadow Davis standing by to tell us about something a little bigger than that. Good morning. Don't you just love when a government releases important information in a period when nobody is paying attention? Well, they do it all the time in the summer when people are on vacation or over the Christmas, New Year void. People aren't talking politics at that point. They're worried about last-minute shopping and how they're going to get from point A to point B in a storm. They're not talking about health care, the prime minister breaking the law, or a report from the federal government that talks about a looming fiscal crisis. So, thank you to Ian Furry of Post Media for bringing this little gem to light. This report was released by the government the Friday afternoon before Christmas when most everybody had already gone home to celebrate the season. And yes, our federal finance department is suggesting Canada is facing a very grim fiscal situation. Remember during the election campaign when Justin Trudeau said, And the budget will balance itself. Well, no! It doesn't. Trudeau promised to run small deficits in his first term, totaling $24.1 billion before returning to balance with a $1 billion surplus in the final year of his first term. Last year's federal budget pegged those deficits at $93.3 billion, with future deficits, if the Liberals stay in power for a second term, totaling another almost $60 billion. Well, this buried report from the Finance Department warns that lower-than-expected growth combined with higher program spending would be sufficient to put at risk the fiscal sustainability of the federal government. That's alarming! The forecast also assumes the budget won't be balanced now until 2055. Projections show the deficit peaking at $38.8 billion in 2035. Federal debt is also assumed to cross the $1 trillion mark around 2031. It's currently at $635 billion. Okay, this is all predicated on government spending continuing this way for many years to come. Let's get back to the line about Canada's fiscal sustainability being at risk. Scary, right? Well, it isn't yet, but if this kind of spending continues, it could be enough to propel us into a default situation like Greece was in a few years ago when their economy came crashing down and they were forced into a bailout scenario from the European Union with strict payback conditions under a brutal austerity budget that they still happen to be under, by the way. After years of free this and free that with incredibly low taxes in Greece, things changed around a lot. Because money ain't free, people. It comes from somewhere, and right now, according to Ian Lee, who's an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, the feds are borrowing for current financing, not for long-term assets. In other words, they're borrowing to pay for the weekly groceries, not to pay off the house. And with interest rates on the rise, this is not a good thing. So what happens next? New and or increased taxes? Well... The new carbon tax should be a windfall for the feds, not to mention money they'll be getting from legal pot. But, according to economists, that money is already spent, and soon they'll be coming for more. So keep one hand on your wallets, folks. This ride is only just beginning. According to the latest polling, even though the Liberals' popularity has dropped in the last year, they're still in a strong enough position to easily win another majority government in 2019 unless things change drastically. Whew. Can't wait to see what happens next. Back to Mackling and McGarry. I thought budgets 
balance themselves. Some, <laughs> someone said that. I can't remember who said that, but I, I heard that once or twice. Yeah. Balance, you know, balance budget. That just it happens organically. You know, fix the other things. Can't remember who said that. Thank you, Shadow. Was uh, that sort? Was that too sarcastic for you? Did, did that make you feel uncomfortable? No. Okay. Good. Just no. making sure. No. Just uh, you know, adding the pause uh, to, to for dramatic effect. Oh well, bravo to you. Yeah. Speaking of dramatic effect, we'll have our own dramatic effect. Uh, I'm doing the math here. Thirty-seven, seven, about forty-five minutes from now. Chris Jericho is scheduled to join us to talk about that incredible match that took place in Tokyo against fellow Winnipegger Kenny Omega. We'll get uh, Chris's reaction to that. And if you have not seen his post-match press conference, uh, check it out on uh, Google it. You'll want to see the video because we cannot play any of the audio of it. No? No, it's either in Japanese or it's obscenity-laced. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you'll want to check that out. Oh, Chris I, Jericho had some very unkind words for the media after that match in Where Japan. did you see the uh, this press so I found it on uh, Twitter. My, my, mm. my addiction, Twitter, <laughs> led me to this. Good, good. And then after our chat with Chris Jericho, we are going to speak with someone who's going to... Uh, Tell us a little bit about what is happening in Iran. Lots of protests in recent weeks, so we'll get the details on that. And today's Divorce Day. What? Divorce Day. What, I guess what, this is, is the, what does that mean? I guess this is the day where people file for divorce after the holidays. Oh. I'm curious to know about this. Is this, do they, is this the day that they announce that's it, it's over, or is this the day that they file? Because mm-hmm. you don't want to do it during the holidays. I guess this is the first, yeah, the first Monday after the holidays, right? Because wasn't uh, last Monday New Year's Eve? New Year's Day was last Monday. Okay. And uh, yeah, so this is the first uh, Monday, I guess, the first working Monday for many. I know Jerry was here. I know last Monday was a working Monday for Behind the Glass Jerry, not implying that New Year's Day was not a working day for Anybody, but uh, this is the first uh, typical business day uh, for of the year, so divorce day. So we'll learn about that at 9.35. Jeff Curry are taking a break today. One last day of vacation of 2017, having to take it in 2018, which means Kelly Moore will uh, man the ship from 10 to 1 here on 680 CJOB. Kristen texted us at 204-780-6868 in response to the Beaverton article, which uh, says that... Winnipeg can't be bothered with hearing about weather complaints from other parts of the country. And Kristen says, forget being unsympathetic to other cities. I am unsympathetic to other Winnipeggers. I work outside every day and I listen to my banker friend whine about the walk to her car. (laughs) Suck it up. As I read that, Kristen, hopefully we don't get you in trouble (laughs) for outing you and your banker friend. (laughs) Maybe should have been anonymous, Brad. One, two, Three. three things with Shanalee Vidal. Today it's three things you may have missed if you skipped the Golden Globes. Good morning, Shanalee. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. And so, confession time. Okay. I went to bed early 
last night. You are the smart one of the three of us then. <laughs> well, uh, I missed all of the excitement at the Golden Globes and I, I'm kicking myself. Yeah, there's technology for that. It's not the end of the world. So I thought, uh, you know, and I wasn't going to do a Golden Globes, but it just seems like it's such a big talker today and I can't really get away from it. So um, here's three things that I missed from the Golden Globes. Good on okay. you for realizing that you missed them. <laughs> I missed. Okay, so first thing is uh, I'm actually adding a new show to my two watch list. It's HBO's uh, Big Little Lies. What do you look at in the ocean? What's out there? Life. Dreams. Mystery. Monsters. It was nominated for six Golden Globes in four categories and actually won in all of those categories. The, wow. Yeah, the show is based on a book from 2014 written by Linda Moriarty. It's a murder mystery drama, and it was the winner of Best Motion Picture or Limited Series that was made for TV. Actually, there's going to be a second season coming out, though, so can't be that limited. Uh, <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and the tagline on its internet movie database listing says, The apparently perfect lives of three mothers of first graders unraveled to the point of murder. It stars Nicole Kidman. She won for Best Actress. Reese Witherspoon was, was also nominated in that category. Uh, Alexander Skarsgård from True Blood won for Best Supporting Actor. Laura Dern won for Best Supporting Actress. And uh, Shailene Woodley was also nominated in that category. Uh, is this what you call an ensemble cast, Brett, with yep. all that firepower? My goodness. Yeah, Star power, firepower. It really is quite the ensemble, and I had it on my PVR, and I am regretting not getting around to watching it. I just, you know, I get kind of buried in all the stuff that's on the PVR, and you got to make some decisions, and uh, much like The Handmaid's Tale, when I dumped that off my PVR, that was a bad decision, and clearly this was a bad decision as well. Are you bumping it up the list then? I'll get to it eventually. All right. Yeah. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be on my next to watch list. I'm sure I can catch up on demand. You can. It's on demand. HBO on demand. Absolutely. If you've got uh, share, it works very well. The next thing that you might have missed, okay, was the best director award. Now it was expected that The Shape of Water would win a few awards. It won for best original sc- uh, score, and Guillermo del Toro picked up the best director award. Natalie Portman and Ron Howard they presented the award and you know read out the nominees. And I think Natalie Portman caught everyone a little bit off. Guard. We are honored, bring, bring, bringing you back to this, <laughs> and this, uh, to be here to present the award for Best Director. And here are the all-male nominees. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. Two words there, yeah. she slid in, yeah, right? There she, there she goes. So the other nominees were Martin McDonough from uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Ridley Scott for All the Money in the World, and Steven Spielberg for The Post. And by the way, Guillermo del Toro, Toro was uh, being forced off the stage by the music. How embarrassing. But he implored them to let him finish. I want to thank the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, Fox Searchlight, and I wouldn't be here. Uh, lower the music, guys. One second. Uh, it's taken 25 years. <laughs> Give me a minute. <laughs> Give me a minute. Good for him. Yeah, one of my favorite directors, by the way, so I'm, I'm glad he's won, even though I have not seen the movie yet. Well, in, in 
Portman's comment, I think, is directed at one particular person. It's Greta Gerwig, who was the director of uh, Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, it was actually a big shock that she didn't get nominated. I, I, I thought she was going to be a slam dunk mm-hmm. nominee, potentially the winner. So when she was excluded from that, yeah, the, Portman's comment is... Deserved. And Lady Bird won for Best Picture, did it not? Yeah, so Gerwig got her opportunity mm-hmm. to come up and speak, but no, like, Best Picture and then no nominee for yeah. the director? Come yeah, on. I know. That doesn't add up, does it, Brett? Nah, sometimes it, well, it's hard. You can't nominate everybody, but I think that they could have easily taken someone off that list and put her this, on the this list This kind of goes instead. back to our earlier conversation about including everybody. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> See, that, you can't include everybody. No, there has to be criteria, no question. No, and so no, number three, the, of course, people were talking about uh, the awards, the black dresses, of course, uh, inspired by the whole Me Too thing. There was one red dress on the carpet, by the way. But uh, I'm not going to get into that. Um, but the biggest talker, of course, was Oprah Winfrey and her her impassioned speech that she delivered when accepting the uh, Cecil B. DeMille Award for Outstanding Contributions in the World of Entertainment. I know we heard some of the speech this morning, um, but, but what she says and how she says it is so important. Uh, so I am going to play another clip. It's one that transcends any culture, geography, race, religion, politics or workplace. So I want tonight to express gratitude to all the women who have endured years of abuse and assault because they, like my mother, had children to feed and bills to pay and dreams to pursue. It's just just an amazing speech. I'm so sorry I missed that last night and you see the video you see all the women start applauding immediately mm-hmm. they stand up men i think were little taken off guard but at first no, you see some, some no, of them no, some I of them looked everyone, a little surprised no everyone was hesitated to stand yeah. i think uh, in the middle of the speech and then many of them including the rock uh, stayed standing for the rest mm-hmm. of the speech so i uh, yeah i think it just uh, in the middle of the speech they were unsure if they is should be like, standing is it like as a social at the, like do you do I that i think do it that? was but, yeah, i think that was more the question than uh, the suitability of of any uh, gender or anyone in particular not standing. I think it was more the timing. Should we be standing in the middle of the speech? It's also the the uh, the awkwardness, but you know of what what do you do, right? And so uh, now some people are saying, hey, Oprah should be president. She should <laughs> run for president. Uh, Meryl Streep is saying that as well. So it's the it's uh, trending on Twitter. Maybe she should run with uh, Michelle Obama. People are suggesting oh in twenty twenty. Oh. That would be quite the pair. Wouldn't it be, though? Anyways, uh, Je- uh, Kelly Moore is going to be playing the whole speech when he fills in for Jeff Courier after 10 a.m. Yeah, some uh, great stories within the story mm-hmm. that Oprah wove uh, in her speech last night. It was absolutely one of the best uh, oratory deliveries I'd, I think I've ever heard, and that's saying something after eight years of uh, President Obama, uh, Obama who could uh, speak with the best of them. Absolutely. The red dress you were talking about came from actress Blanca Blanco. Yes, I didn't know who she was. I saw the name and I didn't didn't know what she was famous for. I admit I'm not familiar with her either. Uh, it's a nice dress, but yeah, she was uh, attacked, of course, on social media, while others say shaming her for her color choice is part of the problem, uh, which it, I think I kind of agree I, with. I, I agree with you. I didn't see I didn't see the dress. Um at all, so I, I can't really say much about it. I, I, I don't suspect, know. But. I suspect the reason she wore the red dress is because none of us have heard of her, and she was maybe taking this opportunity for people to 
talk about mm-hmm. her. That would be my personal take mm-hmm. on it. That's probably exactly what it was. Shannon Vidal, thank you very much. Three things with Shannon Vidal heard every day on the Shadow Davis Show after the eight o'clock news on six eighty CJOB. So that's from Saturday. That is the sound of pro-government protesters in Iran chanting death to America as they marched down the streets of Amol in Mazandaran province as pro-government rallies across Iran were shown on state television. The rallies came a day after the country's foreign minister criticized the Trump administration. Hundreds of people spilling into the streets, waving the Iranian flag, chanting slogans against the U.S. and Israel and officials blaming the recent anti-government unrest on foreign meddling. And uh, joining us in studio to talk about this is is uh, Alan Wise. He joins us as a political sessional instructor at both the University of Winnipeg and the University of Manitoba. He's a former political refugee from Iran and an independent researcher on the Middle East, North Africa, Central and West Asia Politics. Thanks for joining us in studio this morning, Alan. My pleasure. I remember uh, quite distinctly uh, when the Islamic Revolution began back in 1979 in Tehran. Uh, very, very vivid part of that part of my youth, something that dominated the news for uh, weeks and weeks, of course, highlighted, uh, and of course I use that term uh, loosely highlighted, uh, by uh, what happened at the American Embassy and the taking of the hostages and, of course, the Canadian role in that. So that revolution and those mm-hmm. protests have a very vivid memory for Canadians for different reasons. Are these protests capturing, quote-unquote, the imagination of Canadians in that same way? Um, uh, Certainly not, although um, I'm sure with what we see on TV every night, uh, there is a a push by uh, um, certain segments um, within the sort of, uh, I call them the... uh, um, the pondit culture out there to make this something bigger than what it is. Uh, at the core of it, it is just about the economy. Um, like J- James Carville said once in 1992 when he was running Bill Clinton's campaign, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, people are really fed up with uh, rising prices of fuel and food. And of course, with the newest round of budgets that the government has uh, decided to claw back social services and social um, social assistance, rather, for the most needy in the country, has led to this, um, if you want to call it, grassroots movement of um, the, the real uh, folks who are dispossessed and uh, making noise in, uh, in very small towns and cities in Iran. Um, so it is not something that is similar to that um, cohesive, coherent, organized, um, uh, well-financed drive that led to the uh, 1979 Iranian revolution and, of course, the, uh, the takeover of that revolution by the Islamic element. Now, these protests, uh, Alan, when they are chanting death to America, that's right. Why? What's with? I mean, I realize there's all sorts of uh, anger towards the United States yeah. on a perpetual basis in the Middle East, but in this particular context, what's going on there? That's right. The, that particular clip that we listened to is the pro-government rally in Tehran. Of course, in reaction to what was happening across the country in in small cities around Iran. 
the government um, decided to organize and how they've organized it. Of course, it's not uh, clear to me or anyone else for that matter. But uh, these are the protesters who are protesting against people who are on the street and saying that, you know, um, um, they want a better, um, better share of the economy. Yeah. So these are essentially uh, government-organized counter-protesters. Absolutely. So give us an insight into life in Iran since 1980, and, yeah. and how has it changed in the last 40 years, or, or well, how dramatically has it changed? Absolutely. Well, um, I haven't visited Iran for 30 years, but I mean, most of my research has been on Iran and on the Middle East, and of course, I'm in contact with uh, uh, folks who travel back and forth between Iran and uh, Canada. Um, things have drastically changed. The first uh, eight to ten years of the revolution, the first decade, was of course very difficult because right after the revolution there was the eight-year war with Iraq. And of course, uh, at the same time, you had the spiritual leader of the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, being alive. And a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of what was happening at the time, it was that purist, um, you know, uh, filled with the fervor of the Islamic kind of um, uh, expansionist ideology that he espoused. Um, and I was there for the eight years of it, and then I left the country. But what happened after the end of the war was um, successive governments um, that changed hands between the moderates and the conservative elements of the government. Uh, Iran is an autocracy, um, uh, no doubt about it, but uh, um, it is not led by one person. So there are three main factions in the government that actually uh, decide what the outcome of policies in Iran. Uh, one is the conservative side, the more moderate side, and of course there is still the uh, revolutionary um, uh, radical element within the government. So what's happening is that, of course, after um, the war ended, um, the prices of oil um, went up, and country uh, started experiencing a relative economic growth vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the rising price of oil, and it benefited the population. And of course, the uh, moderate government of um, President Khatami and now so-called moderate um, government of President Rouhani is trying to revamp that um, economic success. The promise, the, the very recent promise that right after the 2015 nuclear deal, Iran is going to uh, see an increase in investment has not taken place, and of course, this is why you see the people on the streets. Alan Wise is our guest. He is a sessional instructor politics at both University of Winnipeg and University of Manitoba since 2000. He is an independent researcher on the Middle East, North Africa, Central and West Asia politics, and is a former political refugee from Iran, would you care to tell us a little bit about the circumstances that brought you here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, right after the revolution, uh, because of my family's involvement in politics and, of course, um, their opposition to the um, um, to the Islamic government, uh, we were forced to leave the country. And uh, myself and my siblings left the country. Uh, my dad had passed away as a result of the revolution. And uh, basically, we all scattered around the world as political refugees. I'm here, and I have siblings all over all over Europe. Really? Yeah. 
So where do you see this playing out, Alan? I, I hate to cut to the chase because we have such limited time with you, but uh, where does this play out over the next month, over the next 18 months, over the next two years? A lot of people look at this and imagine that this is a whole other uh, revolution. You don't see it that way. Um, not necessarily. I have been uh, I have pr- I've been proven wrong on on these matters in the past, and uh, you know this may not be any different. Um, when we are talking about um, public sentiments and public emotions, it is very hard to put a mathematically exact um, sort of um, um, idea on it. Sure. Uh, I cannot uh, predict these things. Um, however, from what I'm seeing, it is basically about people's dissatisfaction with the economic situation and uh, the wish um, from outside Iran that somehow this is going to lead into a another revolution and change of regime. I do not see it happening. Uh, this is a very brutal regime that has in the past, as they did in 2009, right after the second election of uh, President uh, Ahmadinejad, uh, put down the revolt very, very harshly and violently. So if, uh, if the current protests... Um, go beyond what um, what they are today, um, I am sure that the government of Iran is going to uh, crush it violently and uh, it is again those poor people on the street who will be paying for it. Does the government seems to have a, a little bit of a tolerance at least for these protests that are happen- happening right now? Is that for optics from the outside looking in? Well, why are they allowing this to a certain extent? Well, President Rouhani came on, on national TV and said that uh, in Iran people can have peaceful protests. This is a um, this is a um, an attempt by the moderate side, that, which he represents, to say that Iran is moving to mo- towards that um, slight democratization, and of course there are within that government factions that are not moderates; they are conservatives and the radicals, who are trying to blame these um, actions, these uh, sort of protests against the economy on foreign agents and foreign governments like Israel, Saudi Arabia, or or, um, the United States, and claims by President Trump that we are going to help um, the uh, overthrow of the government is not going to help it. So this is going to lead uh, the the radical element and the conservative element to uh, react to the protests and, of course, to uh, crush it violently because the... uh, um, the security forces in Iran are under the control and influence of the conservative side. Alan Wise, our guest, once again, a former political refugee from Iran, independent researcher on Middle East, North Africa, Central and West Asia politics, and he has taught politics as a sessional at both the University of Winnipeg and University of Manitoba since 2000. Alan, thank you so much for joining us this morning to shed some light on this. Thank you. Team Canada took on Team Sweden and uh, well, why don't uh, we let Shadow Davis tell you a little story about what happened after the game. Good morning. Here's a little story for you and you may have a similar story to this one. I played organized baseball growing up and when I was 15 our team played out of the old Transcona Stadium which is where this story takes place. It's the deciding game in a best two out of three series, Transcona Mapes, that was my team versus our nemesis Sinclair Park. We're down 3-2, it's the final inning, we're up to bat, last chance to tie or win. There's a man on second, two outs, and it's my turn to bat. We'd seen this pitcher once before, he was really good, threw hard, had a great curve, which was a little weird for us at that age. Anyhow, I get up there and he throws one right past me, strike one, immediately. 
Next pitch, in the dirt, ball one. Next one I tagged, but I was late, and it's just a long foul to the right, so the count's one and two. And the next pitch, which was low and outside, by the way, I'll swear to my dying day it was, Steve Wright three, you're out! You're out! What? I couldn't believe it. Brutal call, Ump. Are you out of your mind? It all came at me in that second as the Sinclair Park players started to celebrate. We lost. I'm to blame. Well, I threw my helmet in disgust. I whipped my bat into the cage. Then I looked up in the stands, which were pretty full, by the way, surprisingly, and saw my grandpa looking at me with a very, very, very disappointed facial expression. And right then I knew, oh, no. I'm a dick. I'm a bad loser. And he let me have it for a week after that. It's something I'm never going to forget. And I couldn't apologize enough to my team or to my coach. It was bad form all the way. So, when I saw Team Sweden captain Leas Anderson throw his silver medal into the crowd after losing to Canada at the World Juniors on Friday night, I totally understood. I got it. However, there's a difference here. Whereas I understood immediately I'd done wrong from years of being told to win and lose with grace by my grandfather, Anderson didn't get it. Here's his post-game interview. That guy understands wanted more than me, so uh, gave it to him. I'm just gonna, just gonna have it home in some box or whatever. So uh, he, he wanted more than me. And, uh, yeah, the whole well, time. the guy in the stands was Buffalo native Bill Shaflukas, and after celebrating briefly in the crowd and taking a few pictures with the medal, he gave it back, saying this. His family and friends are going to want that at some point, so I asked security to get me over to the bench side, and I gave it to one of the trainers. So yeah, I totally get his outburst right at the end of the game. I do. I am sympathetic to that. But Anderson had plenty of time to consider what he'd done when speaking to the press afterward, and he chose not to apologize. He just doubled down. This is the captain of the team. This is the guy that's supposed to set the example. And maybe by now he's had time to consider all the kids who were watching that game, no matter what country they live in, and the poor example he set for them. And now... It's up to the moms and dads everywhere to set it right. In my opinion, sportsmanship is everything. It's why you shake hands at the end of a tournament or a series. It's why you don't rub your opponent's nose in it when you win. It's why you don't throw a tantrum when you lose. It's about class. It's about grace. Two very admirable traits in any competitor, no matter what's at stake or what level you play at or what sport you play for that matter. Back to Mackling and McGarry. My immediate reaction was similar to Shadows, but I also thought about it and pondered the idea of the fact that there are many people out there who feel exactly the way he did. I'm here to win. I'm not here for second. Even Jerry Seinfeld talks about you don't win silver, you lose gold. In the 100-meter race, you buy a nose if you finish first, are world famous. If you lose by a nose, no one's ever heard of you. And there are some people who are very driven who live by that. That is their credo. That is how they have achieved what they've achieved in life. And there will be a lot of people, there are many people, who think that this young man made a mistake by throwing his medal 
into the crowd, and maybe he should have done it a little bit differently, but there are going to be other people who look at this and go, he's a 19-year-old kid. We all did dumb things when we were 19, and there'll be others still, Brett, that commend him for settling, not wanting to settle for anything but very best and for the gold medal. Yeah, there is, uh, I was reading an article here, and I've just found it. Uh, it says, as the saying goes, you don't really win the silver, you lose the gold. And it can feel an awful lot like a consolation prize. And no doubt a podium finish in any competition is still worthy. But I, for me, like I don't, as we, is well documented, I don't go out of my way to watch hockey. But one of the things that when I do watch sports, sometimes I will watch March Madness basketball tournament and part of the reason why I like March Madness is because of the passion of these young athletes it's just kind of this raw emotion and to me even though like I I, I totally understand the the poor sportsman kind of stuff you know you t- you don't take the medal and then just throw it away although I, clearly he singled us this guy out uh, for because he didn't just hock it into the stands right it looked like he actually kind of mm. From what I could see, because he kind of skated over, and it almost looked like he was trying to get it to that guy. Maybe, I don't know if he had seen him wearing the Swedish jersey that he ultimately revealed he was wearing. Yeah, he had two other jerseys on top of the Swedish jersey. So, <laughs> I, I, what was I, the I, second one, by the way? I, was, was I, Rochester? Think was, I think it was Rochester Americans on his Team USA. No, Team Canada, perhaps. Okay. And then uh, Swedish. <laughs> so I'm not sure if this guy was picked out uh, particularly or not, but I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, so I kind of, the point that I was getting at is, you know, it's the world juniors. They're a bunch of kids. They're a bunch of young men. He's mad. He's passionate. So I, in one sense, I, I don't really have a problem with what he did. What do you think at 204-780-6868? We already have a couple of text messages, so if you'd like to weigh in, feel free to do so. We'd love to hear your voice. You can call us at 204-780-6868 or on text. You can email brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. Is is this young man, this 19-year-old Swedish team captain, is he being a poor sport? Is he being a brat? Or is he just showing off his passion? I'm going through the big day and don't mean Dallas. I can't believe what the judge had to tell us. I got the cheek and she got the power. I'm going through the big day and don't mean Dallas. Christmas and New Year is often a moment for couples to celebrate and reflect the best moments from the past 12 months. But for those not going through a festive season, starting the first working Monday after Christmas... Or Divorce Day, wanting to know their rights upon separation or divorce. Parting Ways presents very real financial challenges from splitting assets and liabilities to establishing separate financial planning and retirement strategies. We're joined now by Christine Van Cowenberg, Vice President, Tax and Estate Planning at Investors Group, to talk about the financial side of divorce. Uh, good morning and happy Divorce Day, Christine. Yes, happy Divorce Day. I'm not sure <laughs> if that's the way you're supposed to greet each other today, but yes, that is the day. We're going to go with it. And so the the statistics, this isn't uh, some sort of marketing scheme by uh, a divorce lawyer in uh, Massapequa or something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. But you know, it's funny. (laughs) I just went online to see who started it, and I'm getting hits from the UK. So it's obviously, it's some sort of internationally acknowledged time that people, you know, I don't know if people, you know, decided a certain point after the new year, I guess we need to deal with this. And it, it seems to be something that's not just a North American phenomenon. 
Well, let's just face it. This is a time for resolutions and for fresh starts, and so yep. it would kind of hold true that this uh, would take place. Now, uh, this is—it's not an exaggeration or or a miscomment on my part to suggest that financial uh, strain is the leading cause of divorce in the first place. Yes, it, it's often uh, number one or number two in, in most uh, surveys. It's it's definitely a major stressor for a lot of couples. So if you are thinking about separating, if you're thinking about pulling the pin and getting out of a relationship, uh, what should you, what I guess should we start thinking about in terms of our finances? Well, I think there are a couple of things that people need to keep in mind. First of all, um, although I work for a financial institution, I would say the first call you need to make is to a family lawyer, because I think that a lot of people don't realize what rights they may or may not have, and it can become very complicated. And I do think that you need to speak to someone who's very experienced in the area, particularly, you know, forget about the financial stuff, you know, if you have children and if you've, if you've got other concerns, you need to make sure you have legal representation sooner rather than later. And I know that a number of people actually go see a lawyer before they even make the decision to separate because uh, people do things that they they come to regret they leave the house they you know uh, let the other parent uh, take over custody of the children for a while and sometimes those those decisions can come to haunt you so I I do think it's very important to speak with a lawyer but assuming you're you're uh, concerned about the financial issues I also think it is important to see uh, some sort of financial advisor whether it's your financial planner or your, you go spe- speak to your bank uh, you do need to make some decisions early on and I think that sometimes people don't realize oh you know my 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 partners and my spouse still has a secondary credit card uh, and I'm, I'm the primary credit card holder on that particular account they can go and rack up a huge amount of credit and I am still primarily responsible for that perhaps I should be notifying uh, the credit card companies or the banks that I'm no longer responsible for future charges. I'm still responsible and on the hook for what we've incurred jointly up to date, but I need to stop the bleeding, so to speak, and I need to, you know, create a new financial plan. And that's really important to understand that you are now an individual as opposed to part of a couple and you need to create your own new financial plan. So you need to think about, you know, what sort of insurance do I need? Do I still Will I still have medical coverage under my spouse's plan? Do I need my own life insurance? Do do I need a new will? Do I need a new power of attorney? You're starting basically with a blank piece of paper, and you shouldn't delay too long in making some of those decisions. Now, obviously, Christine, there are circumstances that pop up quite often and literally uh, at a moment's notice or overnight. Uh, and those circumstances uh, obviously difficult to deal with in the first place. But I've also seen for those that are might even have an inkling that their marriage is on the road to, uh, to dissolution, that you should be starting to take care of these things probably, you know, hand in hand uh, before you even see a lawyer to start anything official is to, is to get your financial uh, affairs in order and have a good idea of where you stand before you maybe even let the cat out of the bag to your best friend that you might be contemplating this. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, if couples did go to get joint financial planning together, uh, early on in their relationship, it might actually save the relationship. So if you could get your financial ducks in a row in the first place, that would likely take off a lot of stress and uh, perhaps 
alleviate the problem in the first place. So it would be great if people could get their ducks in a row to begin with. But in some cases, for whatever reason, it's just not possible. And I think that um, in a number of situations, we've seen couples where one person is a saver and the other one is a spender. And that just causes a lot of stress. So uh, yeah, it would be nice to say, oh, get your ducks in a row before you make an announcement, but sometimes it's just not possible. One party is interested in, in being financially prudent and the other one isn't. And so sometimes they're just sort of forced into a situation where they have to say, look, that's it, we're separating, and make that, that, that draw that line in the, sta- in the sand, uh, which is unfortunate, but it's the only way sort of to save themselves in terms of their future financial security. Now, in terms of after-tax value about assets and what have you, uh, like, for example, uh, let's say I've got a home with my spouse and, uh, well, the relationship comes to an end, what happens with all of those shared assets and their value? Yeah, and that's a really good question. I think that a lot of people don't uh, understand what the value of their assets is on an after-tax basis. And if they do do do-it-yourself planning, so to speak, what will happen is sometimes one person will say, fine, I'm going to take the $300,000 home. You can take the $300,000 RSP or whatever it may be. And they don't realize that those assets may have very different after-tax values. If you only have one principal residence, so I'm assuming you don't own a home and a cottage, you can use the principal residence exemption on your home and then whatever gain you may have experienced on the home that's exempt so a $300,000 home is worth pretty much $300,000 unless you're planning on selling it in which case you might have real estate transactional costs etc but it's it's pretty much the 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 value that you see is the value that you get with something like an RSP RSPs are fabulous tax deferrals, and you get a tax deduction when you put the money in, but when you take the money out, you have to pay tax on it. That's mm-hmm. why, for the most part, you don't want to take the money out until you're retired and in a lower tax bracket. But if you were to value that as of a single day, a $300,000 RSP might only be worth a couple hundred thousand dollars after tax because it is a taxable item. So those are the sorts of, of calculations you'll need help with, and you need to make sure that uh, you do speak with an advisor who can help with it's your family lawyer, your financial planner, your accountant, whoever that may be, speak to someone who can help you understand what what the value of your assets is. And even when you're doing an equalization of assets, not everything is included. So for example, did you bring some assets into the marriage or relationship? And uh, in Manitoba, keep in mind that common law partners who've lived together for three years basically are treated the same as, as a married couple. So, and it can even shorter period of time if you have a child together. So this, this discussion also applies to common law partners. You know, have you, uh, did you bring re- um, assets into the relationship? Are any of the assets, um, assets that you received by virtue of a gift or inheritance that you kept separate? You know, what is or isn't shareable? And then even if it is shareable, what is its true after-tax values? Because you want to compare apples to apples and make sure that you are truly receiving assets of equivalent after-tax value. Don't let altruism, don't let your intention to be the good guy or the good gal in the situation get in the way of uh, this financial fairness. We've seen so many situations where I think people are just emotionally completely exhausted and in order to get out of the situation they just agree to whatever it is the other spouse wants and invariably they always come to regret it and I tell people look there's no rush you don't have to agree to anything right away and in fact that's one of the beauties of hiring a family lawyer let them carry on the discussion with your ex-spouse or their counsel if, if what you really need is an emotional break from your spouse 
you know, just tell them, look, talk to my lawyer. I don't want to talk to you about it right now, and I'm not making any immediate decisions. Don't do anything that you'll regret because those can be very expensive decisions. Christine Van Cowenberg, Vice President of Tax and Estate Planning at Investors Group. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CGOB on this Divorce Day. Once again, this is a day where people file for divorce after the holidays. And uh, yeah, so hopefully you don't get served, so to speak. Don't get the, the pink slip, the marriage pink slip. Our Behind the Glass, Jerry, Shanley Vidal, thank you. He's Greg Mackling. I'm Brett McGarry, thanking you for listening to The Shadow Davis Show on 680 CJOB. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.